0: If you could send a message to your former self, what would you say? If you were given the opportunity to write just a one-sentence note, which would be transported magically back to yourself ten years ago, what would you write on it? I know what I'd say, but what, what would you? What would you say to yourself? What advice would you give? Maybe there's a mistake that you tell yourself to avoid. Oh, look out, in a few years, this, this thing's going to happen. Just don't make this bad decision, which I did. Um, maybe there's an opportunity that you'd say, oh, I don't want you to miss this. Or, or there's a whole load of different things, but what, what would you say? There's, there's one thing I know I could have said which really would have just saved me so much trouble, so much anxiety and worry. Would have saved me from some really stupid sins that really caused me and others pain. And they would have stopped... And and this would have stopped me from missing out on joy, on peace, fulfillment that I could otherwise have had. What I would have said would have been, Andy, get to know more and more that God is your Father. Get to know more and more that God is your Father. For in this lies one of the secrets to a life of contentment, joy, and fulfillment, and yet weirdly it's it's a funnily ignored aspect of Christian theology. It's often hinted at but rarely spoken of directly. In fact, there was really no thorough theological dealing with this between the Reformation and the 20th century. And yet Jesus speaks of it constantly. Theologians call this the doctrine of adoption. I'm going to read you a passage from a guy called J.I. Packer, um, who is just a fantastic author, really strongly recommend him to you if you're looking for something to read. Um, You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of a thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. I wish I started on my journey to knowing this better, um, but I'm really excited um, to share with you a little bit about this wonderful aspect of our relationship with God, and I hope it fires something up in you and helps you to seek after this more and more for yourself. What is adoption? This is simply what the Bible says, that when we become Christians, we also become children of God his sons and daughters. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So just a quick note here, depending on your translation, it might say sons of God in this and other passages. The word in Greek for children is actually the same as the word for, word for sons. It's the same in Spanish and some other modern languages as well. So, whenever people wanted to say children there, they just, they just said sons. So, how many children do you have? How many sons do you have? would be the same, same way of saying it. So, it in no way implies masculinity. So, for women, please don't discount yourself in this. This is equally for you. So, in the Old Testament, God gave his people a covenant name Yahweh. I am what I am. This is him saying that he is the reality behind all reality. And it was designed to awaken in his people humility, awe, and and really just to get a sense of God's holiness, that he is separate, that he is great, that he is majestic, that he is pure. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, Holy, holy, holy It's the Lord God Almighty. It emphasizes that we know our place, that we know his greatness. And yet there's this great separation. Now, don't get me wrong, the Old Testament also speaks constantly of his love and his care for us, but there's an emphasis on, on his holiness and how separate he is. The New Testament retains this assumption of God's holiness, but it adds a new dimension and it tells believers, you and me, to address God as their father. In many ways, it's our new covenant name for God. Christians are his children and his heirs. Emphasis is no longer on the difficulty and the danger of drawing near, because in the Old Testament there was a serious danger that the person drawing near to God would die. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is on the boldness and confidence we can have to approach him, since we are his children. Now, in Roman times, adoption was actually a fairly common occurrence, but it was quite different to modern day. So if you're a well-to-do family, you had a whole pile of money, you had status, you had things to hand on, um, you needed a male heir to pass this on to. Now, some families didn't have any sons, and so they were left with a problem. What what are we going to do? Where's all our stuff going to go? So what they would do is they would adopt a grown man, into their family. So this is a man who proved himself, who they said, okay, this is a decent guy. I'm going to bring him into my family. Now, in ancient Rome, fathers had absolute power over their families. They legally owned everything that their children owned. They could punish in their family as they saw fit. Each family unit was very self-contained. And in adoption, the person passed from the authority of one father into the authority of a new one. And so there were a lot of consequences of this for the person that was adopted. Firstly, normally he lost all rights to old family and gained full rights as a son in the new family. In the most literal way, that person got a new father. So too, whenever we become Christians, we move from having sin as our father, death as our father, to God as our father. Also, in Roman times, this this person who was being adopted would become heir to the father's estate, So if this man was to have other children, that adopted son would have the exact same rights of adoption as all the other children. Likewise, God has promised that we will be given amazing gifts. We are heirs of God whenever we become his children. And also, for this person who was adopted, their old life was completely wiped out. All the debts that person had accrued up to that point were cancelled out because really, in the eyes of the law, that person no longer existed. There was a new person, a new start. Their past had nothing to do with their life going forward. Same for us. Whenever we become a Christian, you can, we can still think about the past and it can hold us back, but there's a new start in Christ. We don't need to be held back by our background, by sins either done to us or by us. There's a new start in our new family. In the eyes of the law, the adopted son was literally and absolutely the son of the father. And in the same way, when we become God's child, we are secure. This is our deepest identity. Adoption really is one of the most wonderful truths we can read about in the Bible. I'm really excited to share with you some of this. Um, just like to briefly talk, it's not going to be the emphasis of what I'm saying this evening, but um, modern day adoption is quite different to that. It's normally taking in children who are vulnerable, who have had family problems, who've had sometimes really awful things done to them, um, or sometimes have other difficulties or just have been in a really unfortunate situation, and people bring them in, give them a new family. What a beautiful demonstration of God 's heart what does he do for us? He sees us when we are needy, when we are hopeless. He brings us in. He gives us a family. He loves us. He cares for us. We're secure there in this family. This is what adoption does for children. So people who adopt are really living out something of God's heart. It's just such a wonderful thing to see and absolutely commend it to people. It's just just great. So I'm going to spend some time looking at the words of Jesus. Jesus spoke again and again and again of God as being his father. Um, So let's just look at what that means. So in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a father, but it wasn't a strong emphasis. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as lots of different things, as shepherd, warrior, king, all these different pictures, and father is one of those. And at the time of Jesus, it wasn't really on anyone's radar. People have looked at what Jewish people were writing about at the time, and it wasn't really what people were talking about. And then Jesus comes along, and he just talks about it constantly. It's It's just amazing, actually, when you start looking into how often Jesus refers to the Father. And this was a way which really shocked people at the time. They were used to seeing Yahweh as this person who was separate, who was holy. And Jesus talks about this intimacy that you can have with him. Let's look at a few examples. Um, So most of these are from the Gospel of John. Jesus said his Father is the one that loved Jesus completely, See, um, here we are, 5 verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And 15 verse 9. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. For Jesus, the primary marker of his relationship with the father was one of love. Jesus knew both theoretically and experientially that he was loved. It was a source of great joy for him. It was a daily empowering truth for him. Imagine just for a second going around every day, all day, knowing that you're absolutely adored. All the things you don't like about yourself, your father loves you still. The things about you that you wish you could change, your father loves you still. The mistakes that you make day to day, your father loves you still. When you forget about God, when you're busy, when you ignore him, he loves you still. When you wander, your father loves you still. And when you feel low and you doubt his love, your father loves you still. Father's love for you is scary. His love is intense. It's not theoretical. It's deeply real. It's never ending. It's constant. Nothing in all creation can overcome it. You can never exhaust it. No matter how you're feeling right now, if you feel like the biggest failure in the world, just God just says, whispers to you, I love you, my child. Have you ever been loved by this much before in any human relationship? Of course not. Just take a moment and let it soak in. At the, just right now, the father is looking down on you. If you're his, he's smiling over you and just says, I love you. You're my child. And Jesus was also aware that the father was always with him. In 16, verse 32, he says, you will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my father is with me. And 8, verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Jesus knew really dark times. He was abandoned by friends, beaten, despised, but he knew his father's love was constant. And this, this knowledge gave him the ability to endure. He knew that his dad was loving but also that he was powerful and that he wouldn't let him endure anything more than he could bear and that his sufferings would actually come out for good in the end. It helped him to continue even when he was sorely tempted to give up. (laughs) You can just imagine the father speaking to him. It's okay, father's here. And Jesus able to keep on going. We've been looking at Easter and the sufferings that Jesus went through in the cross and leading up to it. And he did this knowing that this was the Father's will for him. Knowing that this was actually going to bring good, both for Jesus in, in the long term and also for other people. Jesus says that the Father is the one who lifts up and glorifies him. Look at 17 verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus is talking about the father as being like one of these really proud dads. Have you ever seen them, these guys who are going on about, say, their daughter and just saying, oh, wow, she's fantastic. Have you seen her dance? Have you seen her sing? She's just amazing. She's beautiful. I just love her. And then you look and you're like, well, actually, she's a bit of a brat, really. She screams. She runs around. All these problems. But but the father doesn't look at those things. The father speaks highly of his children. You might feel that you're rubbish sometimes. You might put yourself down. You might be acutely aware of your sin. And, you know, we can all sometimes be a bit arrogant and just think we've got it all together as well. But but God looks at you and says, you know, I've actually got a plan for your life. The Bible says he plans for us to become like his son. We're a work in progress. We're we're improving, but we're not there yet. But the all-powerful God has decreed that one day, His children will be like Jesus, spotless, perfect, holy. In the meantime, he sees our mistakes and foibles as as part of a bigger story. And like a good father, he corrects us at times and says, you know, that's really not the way you should be going, but knows that in the end, we're going to turn out okay. He's promised it. His power will achieve it. Jesus says as well that the father is the one he listens to and obeys. John 6 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to the will of him who sent me. Jesus knew that he was completely loved and his father had his best interests at heart. Jesus then for him obeying the father was the natural thing to do. Jesus believes that the father's plans for him were good and that by following him, them, they would lead to joy. It's the same for us. You know I look back at the sins I've committed in the past, and I, I really, really regret them. Um, some of them are huge, some of them are small, but but I realize, looking back, that whenever I've been tempted to sin, it's normally that the, the temptation says, you know what, you're going to be happier if you do this. And yet I look back, and the times I gave in, whew, <laughs> it didn't make me happy, and it didn't make other people happy either. So since coming to my father, following him, he's asked me to do some really hard things, actually. But I know that wherever I've been obedient, it's resulted in joy for me and for others. And disobedience has brought me and others pain. Jesus also said that knowing our father will completely transform the way that we pray. 6 verse 9, our fa- this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The father is always available. He's never too preoccupied to listen. He doesn't need to be pressurized. If you look at um, six, and, uh, 6, 7 to eight, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We're encouraged to ask for anything and everything. Jesus says that we're to become like little children. My oldest boy is nearly two, and he is constantly asking for things. There's nothing which is too big for him to ask for. There's nothing which is too small for him to ask for. If there's an ambulance going past outside, he runs up to the window and he wants me to pick pick him up. And he's like, up, 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 up to look out. And he wants me to take him over to fire engines. He wants me to do all these things. But other times he wants me to give him food or to put on the TV. There's no niceties when he does it. He just says, more, like that. And I'm just like, okay, okay, I have to go and do it. There's no polite phrasing. He just comes out and says it. And often it's at the most difficult times. Um, (laughs) He's really into footballs, uh, which is genetically improbable, but it's happened. And um, so he constantly is asking for balls. And we were visiting a family member who was fairly rotund. And he just runs up and points to their tummy and says, Ball, like that. So that's awkward. But um, he just constantly asks and constantly wants things. And if we don't give it to him, he goes crazy. He screams, he yells, he lies on the floor. There's floods of tears. Why does God ask us to be like this? The secret is he is aware of his helplessness. He knows that he can't do anything. He can't get up to see the fire engine. He can't make himself food. He can't get himself the ball. If he's hungry, he he needs me to help him. And he asks again and again and again and again. I try and be a good father and usually the answer is yes. I'll do my best to give him what he wants. If he's asking and there's no reason I can't, I will, I will do what he wants. But there's times when I do need to say no. But actually, even in those moments, my heart is still to give him what he's kind of really asking for. Sometimes he's there and he points up to where we keep the chocolate and stuff and he's like pointing and wanting food and saying to give him food and and I know that he's hungry but that's not going to be good for him so I'm like no I'm not going to give you that but but I will give you your dinner because that's what you actually need. There's other times when he's shouting and screaming and asking and asking and asking and actually he's just exhausted and he just needs a rest and so I use my superior knowledge and wisdom to give him what he really needs And it's like that with our Father as well. The amazing thing about praying is just how often God says yes. I've always struggled with prayer. It's been something I've found really difficult. But God's been taking me on a journey over the last six months to a year or so. And one of the things I've really learned is just how shocked I am at how often God says yes. Whether it's buses to come, rain to stop car parking spaces to appear, babies to stop crying, more sleep sometimes. uh, God just loves saying yes. But sometimes though, I feel like nothing happens. Like I pray and, and God doesn't hear, but I can trust him. He's my father. He knows what I need and that he's heard and he will answer in the best way possible. He's a good father and he wants to give us good gifts. Also, we can trust him for our daily life. We can trust him for our material needs as we serve him. Have you ever heard people using the phrase, I'm going to live by faith? So often people will use it in terms of, I'm not going to work for a period, and I'm going to trust that God will meet my financial needs. So often people do it as part of a year program or something. They say, oh, this year I'm going to be living by faith. And that's great, but actually we're all called to live by faith. And it's not necessarily not about working for finances, but it's about following the Father, whatever the cost, and trusting him for the consequences. We're all tempted, though, to not do that. It's much easier to put our security and our status here on earth and give that higher um, priority in our lives than what the Father asks us to do. And even if we manage to overcome that, instantly we're hit with anxiety. How will we manage? How will I pay for X and Y and Z? How How will I cope? Jesus talks about this too. In Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes. But it's really hard to stop worrying. I, by, ne- by natural temperament, I'm a bit of a worrier. I can worry about things, I can just find myself slipping into it, and there's that knot that forms in your stomach. But I'm not the only one. It's a huge problem in our society. One in six people, one in six have had depression and anxiety symptoms in the last week. 8.2 million people a year in the UK. One in ten of us will have a disabling anxiety disorder at some point in our lives. 13% of us will have a phobia, but 2.5% of us will have obsessive compulsive disorder. All these anxiety problems tend to start early as well. So about 75% of people who are going to get an anxiety problem have it by the age of 24. And sadly, women are twice as likely to be affected as men. And it's easy to see why anxiety is so common, because the world is a really scary place. Terror attacks, accidents, health problems, and even just normal life is tough. Making ends meet, achieving what you want to achieve, meeting your demands that are placed in you by work, family, university, society, all these things. Jesus' answer to us is fascinating at how to fight anxiety. Verse 26 Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus links the answer to anxiety. With our adoption. If God is our Father, and we believe He's all powerful and all knowing, and He's promised to take care of us, then actually the only people in the world without good reason to be anxious are Christians. If you're not a Christian, then unfortunately you do have good reason to be anxious. There's lots of bad things that could happen, and you don't have anyone looking out for you. There's an invitation for you today, though to have a new father for yourself. And it's really easy. You just ask Jesus to do it for you. Just say you've decided that you're going to follow him whatever the cost. Realize your need for forgiveness. And right now, just as I'm speaking, just say, Jesus, do this for me. Transform my life. Forgive me. I want this. He doesn't want you to be anxious anymore. But I understand that for Christians, anxiety might be a huge issue for you and it's not overcome easily. But let's make a start tonight by letting this truth sink in. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. He's promised to never leave you. He's promised to never forsake you. And he's promised to provide everything you need. He loves you. You are chosen and cherished by him. There's a story I heard of a girl who's um, in a car and her family are in a rush, so they're driving and they're swerving in and out of traffic and suddenly the girl just screams out and says, I'm really scared, we might crash. And her mum turns around to her and says, don't worry, darling, daddy's a really good driver. Same for us. You might feel like your life's just going crazy and you're too anxious to think about even all the different things that are going on. But your father is a good driver. He knows what he's doing. He will get you through it. Do you trust him? God's inviting you to listen to him, believe that he loves you dearly, and to realize more and more what it means to be a son or daughter. And also, knowledge of our being a child of God leads to hope for the future. The Christian faith is one of great hope, Adoption in great time, sorry, adoption in Roman times was specifically with the purpose of getting an heir, someone to give things to. And so it is for Christians. God brings children into his family so he can give us stuff. The Bible says that we will be more and more like Christ. And in the future, there's going to be a great transformation. Sin and mortality will be in the past. In 1 John 3, verse 2, I don't have the verse up, sorry. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this is what heaven will be like for us. God's promise will not fail. It will be a family gathering. Our father waiting there for us. Jesus, our elder brother. Jesus said, Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world the next one, there's a picture I'd like to show you of a, um, of a little boy um, whose name is Liam Finazzi. And this boy is from Telford um, in England. Just a few days after his fifth birthday, Liam was really sadly diagnosed with Burkitt leukemia, which is a really rare and aggressive form of the disease. So he had to go into hospital and had chemotherapy treatment, but unfortunately, as part of that, his immune system was so weakened that he got a brain infection and was left with some brain damage. And so due to his ill health, he was forced to stay in hospital for 11 months. Just imagine that for a moment. A five-year-old boy cooped up in hospital, cooped up in a single room for a lot of that time. And finally, he was allowed to come home. The day was set. He was sent home because he was well enough. And his family decided to throw him a party. Which is here. And you can just see that all his friends and family gathered. That's his mum there, his brother, his dad, everyone there. Great joy that finally he's come out. He's out of the hospital. He's back. We've got our Liam back. This is what heaven will be like for us. When we die, we will pass away from this earth. Like leaving hospital where there's been suffering and pain, we will leave that behind forever and enter into the house of our father And this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be a party waiting there for us. Your father running forward to hug you and say, welcome, welcome, my child. Jesus there as well. So happy to see you. The saints that have gone before as well, celebrating that you've made it. Oh, it's going to be great. So what should be our response to all this? To recap, if you're a Christian, you have a wonderful, loving father. He loves you completely. In fact, we can never fully know how much he loves us. And this has huge implications for our lives. In many areas, we've looked at how being God's child can transform our prayers, how it can relieve anxiety, and how it can help us to look forward to the day when we meet our father face to face. And it's easy to be excited by this, but also to realize that it's something which is easily lost. We can forget about it. We can fall back into old habits. We can worry. We can forget who we really are. The world is fascinated by identity, isn't it? Who are you? Who are you really? This is who you are, really. If you're Christ, you're God's child. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. So to help us, to grasp this, to help us to really get this into us, the Father has given us a wonderful gift, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has got lots of things he does. He helps us understand the scriptures, believe the gospel, He lives in us, makes us holy, gives us energy. He reveals God's heart and guidance in the prophetic and brings God's power and healing and miracles. But in Romans 8 verse 15, he says, he's described as a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He works tirelessly to help us truly appreciate who we are, that we are God's son, that we are God's daughter, to give us faith that this is true, assurance when we need it, and great joy that no matter what the outward experience is, we can know that God is with us.